Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving podcast. Right, on the show this week, we have a man who's been running a label for even longer than I have, if that's possible. Ghostly International launched in 1999. And Sam Valenti, who's on the show this week, was the founder, is the founder. So they're doing 25 years next year. Wow, that's a serious achievement. That's an extraordinary achievement, really. But yeah, great to have him on. So what we cover in the show today follows on in some respects from the conversation I had with Sean Reynaldo a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago. And um, I wanted to get Sam's take on a few of the issues. This is a really interesting conversation and I really, really enjoyed having it. So I think this is going to be one that you're going to enjoy, particularly if you enjoyed that episode with Sean, which I know lots and lots of you did. So yeah, let's get into it, shall we? Just before we do that, I should remind you that we are on Patreon. The show runs off Patreon subscriptions, donations, supports, however you want to categorize it. There are two tiers, the first of which is four bucks a month, and there's a slightly more expensive one at 10 bucks a month, which gets you lots and lots of music. In fact, all the music they release on Hot Flush Recordings and peripheral affiliated labels. So yeah, if you're enjoying what we're doing here, then get involved, patreon.com slash scuba official. If you don't want to do that, if you can't afford it, that's also fine. Do us a favor and hit the five-star button on whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. That really helps as well, so please do that. Follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes to that playlist featuring lots and lots of ghostly international tracks this week, as well as all the previous stuff in there. Tons and tons of tracks in that playlist now, actually. And join us on the Discord's hotflushrecordings.com slash discord if you want to say anything about the show to join the community, really. I mean, there's a uh, Patreon-only area of that discord if you want to join the Patreon as well. But most of it is just available to anyone 
So yeah, join us there, hotflushcoins.com slash discord. Okay, without further delay, here is Sam Valenti. Sam Valenti, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for, for having me, Paul. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Where are you at the moment? I am in New York City, in Manhattan. Okay. I, in fact, I was listening to, fact, I listened to a, a comedy podcast yesterday in which they really were emphasizing how much New York has changed since the pandemic. Is that is that your experience too? Did they did they say in what like what capacity or what? I think just the everyday experience of it, like loads of old, like loved places have shut down. Like there's just a kind of, I guess, acceleration of the um, forces of modernity, if I can put it like that. I think that's probably true everywhere, right? I mean, San Francisco, I know, lost a lot of beloved restaurants and I'm sure London. And yeah, it it probably hastened the end of of some places, unfortunately. And the, the risk... Tolerance. I was excited when um, the property values or rents for a brief blip was was lower in New York, um, and if, and that was like I think that's always been the been one of the main um, issues. I think is that New York obviously symbolically is like where you go in the the states to like make your name or like you know the big the big bad city, um, and that was possible. Uh, rent wise for a long time for artists and whatnot. And then obviously that was, you know, the hope was that there would be more um, people coming in at a, at a um, more reasonable rent, whether they be retailers or chefs or DJ, whoever. And, but that obviously that the, you know, values sprung back up. So I don't, um, I, I, it's hard for me to put a finger on, like, I don't think uh, my experience it's still, you know, it, I lost some favorite spots, um, but New York's kind of been on that trajectory anyway, you know. So I, I don't, I don't have like a, yeah, there's not like a specific um, thing. I think just, but just yeah, socially in general, I think it's for everyone. It it, it slowed down the pace of of uh, socializing. It made socializing more labor intensive, emotional, emotionally and otherwise. So it's good to see um, shows picking back up, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, how long have you been there actually? Because you're from the Detroit area, aren't you? Originally. So, when did you first move to New York? Yeah, I I have been here on and off, um, you know, since maybe 2006, and you know, some of that time was split between Michigan, late 2000s or, or early to mid 10s. I was still back and forth. I still had a room um, in a, a apartment that. I share with a friend that I would go back and forth to. We had an office in Detroit or in Ann Arbor, I mean, and then in Los Angeles too. I was there for a minute and we've had people there for a long time. And But yeah, my, I've been circling New York for, about, you know, 15, 20 years almost. What was the motivation of going there? Because I mean, did like the... Um yeah, the, the kind of journey of New York into this kind of like hyper expensive, hyper sort of desirable place, I guess, in the last 20 years has, I mean, it's sort of been shared by Detroit, but I mean, obviously Detroit was coming from such a, um, I, I guess, a desperate place uh, 20 years ago. And obviously it has changed quite a lot too. But like, yeah, tell me about your journey between the two places. Yeah, I, I've always kind of seen them as, uh, you know, the I'm still a believer that like a lot of the best art is made outside of the major cities, but I mean, obviously the, the, the UK indie and dance music 
uh, legacies that I've inhaled over the years has taught me that. Um, and then obviously Detroit and Chicago being major cities, but not coastal cities uh, per se. Like that's always been my belief is like making making work is different than um, promoting or selling work, what, what have you. And I think those have, LA has kind of become maybe the, in the States, the um, happy medium for a lot of people where you can have an artistic practice, whether it's music or DJing or painting photography and also have a commercial audience. Um, it was a nice, when I did my brief time in LA, like in the, in the 2010, 2013 era, uh, it was still like, wow, you're going to LA. Why, why would, why would you leave New York? You know, it was like, it was really funny. How, and then very, very quickly it, it shifted where it was like, please get me, <laughs> get me sunshine, get me like some degree of, of, uh, you know, a semi-suburban urban existence, which um, it's hard to have, you know, in the in the states to some degree. So, and I, I I think you're lucky. You know, we're lucky. I've been lucky to live in any of these cities. Um, so I don't really dog them. Like they all have their pros and cons. I just have always have always you know obviously being um, growing up on like hip hop and seeing how the two cities kind of play off each other, Detroit and and New York, and like kind of seeing them as, as, a, as a boomerang and even like the boomerang between the States and um, Europe, you know, obviously techno being this kind of conversation uh, where, you know, Detroit um, did its thing. Berlin obviously was one of the first cities to really adopt it. Obviously it had some chart success in the UK and then you get this kind of back and forth. And I, I think at the beginning with ghostly in 99 and early 2000s it was a little bit of a quieter period for detroit it was still humming but uh, there wasn't as much like out cultural output um so i felt kind of like we were like a boomerang back in some ways and us and other labels at the time and promoters that like the conversation was continuing and we were definitely thinking a lot about how can we play europe how can we get records over there how can we get in the magazines that because there wasn't really much of a dance music press. So it's um, New York was a, a good place to to do that and to throw events and whatnot, but it was a back and forth. Sure. I mean, I think, yeah, by the end of the 90s, the whole of, sort of dance music culture really was very European, wasn't it? I mean, and, and actually very quite UK. Certainly the dance press was very, very much the UK press. And I, and I love those, mag you know, Jockey Slut, Music, Sleaze Nation, The Face, DJ... The, all those print mags, like you could get them. The big, uh, the big chain was um, Borders Books, which is kind of like Barnes and Noble in Ann Arbor, and they all they would import all those mags and just go there and and read and inhale, you know, all this stuff. And I know some of the that era is considered corny to people now, like the pro, you know proto trance or um, or you know neo trance. Wow, I mean, it's pretty popular now. Yeah, that's true. That's true. No, it's kind of heartening <laughs> to see that because I've always I always have a a soft spot for some of that stuff. Um, but it was like it, it felt like a real industry, and I felt like if we could, it, maybe a dance music um, label couldn't really. I didn't see it as like totally a possibility in the states, but it did seem like a, a definite possibility um, there. And so it was like, could we? gain a little traction um having an audience there getting our djs to play there felt like a big achievement you know the first sonar we did the first um our first little tour in 2003 i just found the photos we did 
Plastic People, Matthew Deer and Dabry, um, the the work guys, the like actress and Lukid and the, those guys, and we played the the pulp. Uh, the pulp. I, I know you just had Chloe on. Um, oh, did you play there? Wow. Okay. Okay. And exactly. Yeah, I found all these flyers, and uh, we did Robert Johnson. In fact, hang on. Can you can you tell can you tell me about the pulp? Because I was I sort of reflected uh, after having done that into Chloe that I really wish I could have gone there. So yeah, what was it like? Yeah, I mean, it's I've only I, I can't I'm not a true historian of the of the the club, but I mean the it just felt really cool that we were asked, you know, to to, to I was just kind of putting flowing e- emails into the ether, seeing who would book us and did Robert Johnson on that tour. Um, and, and, uh, it was, I just remember being super fun. Um, and like, I didn't find it to be, the audience was just super up for it. Um, this is sort of like, you know, beginning of minimal, um, in some ways, like we were, we were really into Perlon and compact and obviously mixing that with like Detroit records and, um, there was there's a really neat little sound window in that era, and it's also like you had the, the, a lot of the French artists like Crickor and um, who were the other um, that label uh, tele, is Telegram Telegraph. There was just yeah, just that just that like plinky plonky funky minimal like Magda and Mike Servito played. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a good way of just describing. You know, that. like yeah, like a little groovier before it got sort of yeah, stiffened yeah, out sure. a little bit. Like that was a. It just felt like a language, and I felt we felt really emboldened by having the ability to like, even a super small underground uh, level just to like converse in that language in that conversation. And I've always, always, I've relished that about dance music that it is. I always felt like you had a, you had a couch you could sleep on if you were a dance music fan. Um, And I'm sure you've experienced that all around the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you definitely have that kind of, yeah, it feels like a community, doesn't it? Even if it's slightly disparate sometimes, you definitely have that kind of kindred spirit element to it when you go and go, go abroad, go to other places. I actually wanted to start, actually, I mean, I obviously want to talk about the history of the label um, and get into all that stuff. I, I, I had, well, I had written down on my notes that I wanted to ask you about Herb Sundays to start with, though. So this is your Substack, uh, which I've been reading today, actually. Um, and it's really interesting. So can you tell me about it? Tell me about starting it. What was, what was the motivation behind starting something like that? Yeah, it scratches kind of a, a couple itches. Um, the, the name was, I think during like lockdown, I would, I, like a lot of people, I would post photos of like what I was listening to at home and buying a lot of records and kind of leaning maybe into some of my like more obvious <laughs> record or like kind of corny records. I think I posted a Steely Dan record in started using hashtag like Herb Sundays whenever I'd post something a little bit daft or like smooth or um, maybe uncool. And Herb is like a East Coast slang. Like, I think it's a 90, like a late 80s, 90s slang for um, like uncool. Like the worst thing you could be is a Herb. It's like, it means you're not clued in. You're not, you're out of, out of touch or you're not like with it, whatever. Um, so I just sort of love that kind of, uh, reveal of like what people actually listen to because obviously so much of what we put out there is you know in music is like persona and like oh i got my dj chart has to be like super now and contemporary and reference all these different points right yeah it, it, you know it's a performance in itself, right, right right like yeah, yeah the performance of being um on socials or being a dj or being a musician is 
all defining. So it's like the idea is like taking off that cool a little bit, trying to get people to share songs that they think are cool. You know, like Trevor Jackson with like Robert Palmer tracks. And he, I mean, he thinks they're the coolest songs in the world, but like you maybe wouldn't pick some of these songs or like there's like a Billy Idol cut on his playlist and it's like beautiful, like hearing the playlist through the different people's lenses. Playlist, you know, obviously the tradition of like mixtapes. Uh, grew grew up making mixtapes on cassette, pause tapes from the radio for girls or for friends, or you know that was the lingua franca of the suburbs was like sharing cassettes, right? And and so I still have a, like a lot of love around the idea of a playlist that's hand spun. Um, it's still it's an organic quality in a in a anal, or a algorithmic world and so i ask i ask people that i've 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 known for a long time or people i admire that i've never met musicians artists photographers writers journalists for a, a weekly mix so it's the herb sundays is like their sunday mix it's encouraged that they get a little bit um uncool or like vulnerable and put some stuff that maybe doesn't wouldn't you wouldn't normally define them by but yeah, just good music. It's not, it's really nothing much more than that. And then I write about them, what what they mean to me, or what I what I admire about them. And it's sort of like giving flowers to different people I admire in real time, and trying to get some feelings out. Yeah, and um, yeah, like I said, I uh, like it a lot. So it's interesting that it's on Substack because um, I know you listened to our episode with Sean Ronaldo the other week, and obviously his Substack offering has kind of, I guess, given him, um, well, he's built a platform there, right? And done some really interesting work. And actually, to be honest, I there were, there were a, few, um, a few points out of that episode that I wanted to ask you about directly because, I mean, obviously, you know, as I mentioned on that episode, we don't tend to have writers on here and I much prefer to ask people about these things who actually got skin in the game, as it, as it were. So if you don't mind, I've got like a few that I'm just going to pick your brain on before we delve into ghostly in detail and all of that stuff. So the first one I want to ask you about is, I, I suppose it, re- it relates directly to, to the starting of the label actually, and, and also to, to New York, which is the idea that, well, the, his quote was like, maybe don't, maybe local scenes don't matter anymore. And this is something which, is, which resonates with me quite hard. And um, I bemoan the um, the relative decline of this, but t- tell me what you think about that idea. I mean, I think I understand um what he's saying. And Sean's interesting because he's done so much w- work and he's such a uh, good journalist and it's done been in, I think he does, you know, even though maybe he's not a producer DJ, he, he does have skin in the game and that's why his, his Substack resonates. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I mean, it's a different, it's slightly different you kind know? of skin, I suppose. Yeah. No, I know. I know yeah. what you're saying though. It's like, yeah. And I, and it's interesting. Like I don't, I don't, I am a huge fan of journalists. I don't um, fancy myself one. I'm just putting out the stuff that I either, I want to put some more light on, but I don't, Call, I wouldn't call myself a journalist because it's um, yeah. What you're doing is more like blogging, right? Yeah, exactly. And I and I don't and I never would disrespect uh, what journalists do and like the work they put in. But I get to like cosplay. I get to research. I get to it. It's, the journalistic practice is very fulfilling for me to learn and, and to like research and understand. Probably what, what you do with your podcasts and but but I mean the, the the local scene thing. You know, I don't have any data around it. Like. Obviously, yes, you have a immediate ability to transmit globally. Um, maybe scenes get absorbed quicker into, I think everything gets absorbed quicker. I mean, think about the speed of like NFTs or any sort of modern um, tech where it just kind of feels like 
almost the, the mainstream the mainstream has a edge on everything just because the speed of adoption has grown you know i feel fortunate that ghostly kind of was got got to incubate in ann arbor you know while i was in school we got to throw local parties we got to put up flyers with you know duct tape and go out and do flyer runs every week for our weekly party and build a little fan base and meet artists through it and those djs that came to the parties became the djs for our party like and i'm, I'm guessing that's you know that's still a thing that's happening um it's just obviously you can go from zero to 60 a little quicker. So I don't, I don't know, like I'm guess you know, I, I assume that things will still continue to evolve out of local scenes. It's just that you have the eyes of the world on you pretty fast. If you're, if you're, if you gain traction, which I think is hard for artists cause it, you need some time to kind of goof around a little bit and like find your voice. So I do feel for, um, feel for is the wrong word. It sounds a little sentimental. I do, I think it would be more challenging to start now and to develop a voice and not think about, Oh, is this cool compared to what they're doing in XYZ place? Um, but I love the idea of like groups of friends. I mean, Daniel Wang once told me and it stuck with me. He's like all great dance music communities, labels, et cetera, are, are effectively start as groups of friends. And that's, that's the community that I always think back to whenever I'm thinking about great labels. Um, which I know labels themselves are even in question as like, is it, impor- is it an important part of the community going forward or not? Which I think is great that that artists can just kind of bypass that. But labels as like little symbolic communities of, of thought and taste to me is that's why I started the label. I love the idea that these little microcosms of taste can be so powerful as like a identifying gesture. You know, you can, you can get a lot of data into a record sleeve or a cover or a, a podcast or a logo. And like, that's the, the spirit I still kind of um, respond to when I see up and coming labels. I love watching how they operate, you know, whether it's like Cloudcore doing these sort of like hyper limited digital things where if you don't buy it, then you may not get it again, which is cool. Or um, some of the more vinyl only type labels like, it's like these these little um, artistic gestures feel what dance music's made of for me. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And you're absolutely right to say that, I mean, there are positives to the ability of acts to do things themselves, to do it all direct. But actually, you know, the, the function that a, lab, a small label plays in that kind of micro scene, you know, it enables people who aren't involved in music in other ways to participate right and real value i think can be i mean yeah you know, you're a great example of this real value can be added you know to to a scene and to music generally speaking you know in, in a way that isn't you know it's not putting on a party or making a tune or whatever like you know or djing or you know whatever it's, it's a different input which also has a lot of impact i think right 100 percent, yeah and it's a it's like a guild and i, and I love what um the interdependence concept um, you know, that, that Holly and Matt Dryhurst are propagating. It's like, yeah, music's always been interdependent. Like there's a lot of um, indie major dichotomy thinking, but really it's like, you know, we've been, we've been just in the past have been distributed by major distro and like, we all kind of rely on these networks um, to get stuff through. So it's really less like in major indie or whatever, or like, I'm underground or not. It's like, how do you form together to make the best 
art and t- how do you disseminate it? And like, you got to, you, you know, people bemoan socials, but they've also been really helpful. Um, or at least for a period of time, were really helpful for getting the word out for free, you know? So you got to, I think I always kind of feel like we're just riding the technology waves and ghostly is very much like a technology enabled label. We started when I was in college in 99 and I had my first T1 like high speed and Napster followed really it was right there. And just that conversation kind of seeing the end of the era, but also in that. So I never really had like the rose tinted glasses that like, Oh, it used to be so good. It's always kind of been like a faulty system, but you're just trying to use each innovation. And so whether it's social, it's socials or, um, you know, down, downloads, iTunes, Beatport 1.0 or streaming or, um, what have you, it, you have to like make the most of those little moments and then use them to propagate your art even if they're sort of slightly unfair or tilted against you, but they're the waves you can ride, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, now that we're here, it kind of makes sense to ask um, about Ann Arbor now and the kind of local scene that you guys came out or the label came out of initially. So, I mean, as you mentioned, it's um, in the Detroit area, but it's, it's it's a few miles away, isn't it? So tell me a little bit more about that and what it was like in 99 when you got started? I mean, I grew up in the, in the suburbs of Detroit. Um, so like, you know, going to shows mostly as mostly into hip hop, like in high school. So like I would D de- I was DJing school dances and house parties, like with my little, you know, turntables in the cases and the, the big speakers. And that was fun. And, and, um, started like going to, to hip hop clubs, like St. Andrew's hall, which is still there. It's like a, more of a performance venue, but there was a, a, a weekly night hip hop night that DJ House Shoes, one of my mentors who's done a Herb Sundays, would do. One of the guys who really helped um, build uh, Dilla's reputation early on, um, and I would just sneak in with him because I could, I was too young to get in um, legally. But like if I came with him, I didn't care. You know, help them carry his records. This is obviously pre CDJ time. Um, I could go and just sit and listen. I had, I had, my hands were X'd out. So I wasn't drinking or anything. I just was sitting and just, just hearing music loud, you know, and then that, that led to raves and it kind of caught the last gasp of the, the nineties rave scene in Detroit, which was super influential. And that really helped that. Plus the, um, I think, you know, warp was obviously in like real high gear in the late nineties. So seeing how like hip hop kind of worked with drum and bass, which I was really excited about and getting those imports and seeing how warp worked with kind of like a, as a furthering of, um, or a, a auditing of drum and bass plus like really getting into Detroit techno and into rave as a physical communal thing. Finally understanding because dance music, even though there was electronic electronica thing where it was marketed really heavily, it still was kind of seen as like a laughing stock by serious music people. But then I was like, when I understood, <laughs> what, what was it? Really? Yeah. It was, Cause I, I think uh, the U S never really had a, I mean, disco is its own thing. It's own conversation, big, way bigger conversation, but Americans never really got the memo. Um, the most, the place where most Americans like dance are like school dances and then weddings and that's it. Right. And so, it's never, it, whereas like obviously the UK really like absorb has absorbed it into the culture and like it's part of the fabric of 
social life and everything. Dance music always was this kind of like um, outlier for this is my experience, at least at the time. Americans saw it as like lesser or like um, like not talented. You know, American music obviously there's a lot of virtuosity and big voices and riffs and like mu- musicality. So and, and dance music was seen as sort of um, at least in the circles that I was raised in was seen as like repetitive and like a kind of a, a gag, right? And so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting observation, actually, because I'd never really like explicitly thought about the degree to which it was sort of embraced in sort of British music culture, right? Because it really was like quite quickly. I mean, there was this kind of initial hysteria about, you know, the tabloid hysteria around Acid House, but that was really kind of gone, I suppose, by the early 90s. And I guess by the end of the 90s, there'd been, you know, wave after wave of really successful, quite mainstream acts. Like, I mean, yeah, including stuff like, I mean, yeah, stuff like Underworld and The Prodigy. And, and you know, they were big British bands, basically. You know, obviously the Britpop thing had happened in the nineties too, but and which was completely different. But you know, the those and people like the Chemical Brothers just were very much in the kind of mainstream consciousness, I suppose. And in, in yeah, I, in a way which I guess well, America's a very different music market anyway. But I mean, yeah, I mean you're you're right to say that. Yeah, and, and a lot of Ghostly was kind of about like, hey, we can do this. We can get you know, the, we've we've always had sort of an album centric attitude and maybe that's sort of like a rockist american thing but like can you make a great album you know still like a thing that resonates or at the time felt important so it's like really putting energy into making songs um that can translate to both like college radio and clubs uh personalities and voices obviously like the detroit like diet that i grew up on was very like militant faceless anti-mainstream so it was like there was a little bit of subversion that we were trying to do with Ghostly at the beginning was like putting Matthew Deere's face on the records and like having personality and like it wasn't trying to be cheeky. It was just like, well, maybe these are real, maybe quote unquote real artists. These are like, these are the, these are, this is the vanguard of now, right? And it, it's stuff that has been done before, but it was um, kind of a little bit of a faux pas in Detroit. And we got some pushback for sure by trying to make, these projects like happen because it was just not you know in style to do anything that was um less or more than just like the faceless uh, archetype and and so and a lot of that was yeah inspired by those bands you mentioned and the high art aspirations of like an underworld that is, can both like reach the masses but also have a lot of like nuance and texture um that was really exciting and that's the music that you know i remember the first cds i really bonded over with with Matt Deere were like Carl Craig's more songs and um Underworlds probably Boku Fish but the one before um before that too Second Toughest we like we we, we, we that and and Homework we were like revered those records you know just like cuz they were such big statements you know and so that that's the sort of americanness i guess to the label but yeah it was wanting to prove that we could do it that we could do it from Michigan and not New York or LA. That was really important to me. And with like local talent, um, honor Detroit and the history. And you know, I was going to all the record stores at the time and uh, listening to the radio that uh, I still do, obviously, but like the um, buying records from like people like Mike Huckabee and Mike Servito and 
there was like a big brother network in Detroit, which was kind of great because they sort of hardened you in a way. Like if you bought, if you brought a, a stack of records to the counter, they would kind of dog you. It sounds bad in modern terms, but they would like be like, no, no, don't, don't fuck with like, put that back. Like this is the get, get this one, <laughs> which like sounds like in a you know everybody's like is so um, omnivorous it's now. It's fucking wild, isn't it? Really, yeah. Yeah, but it's awesome. Like I missed that. I missed like, and I think I was yeah, so yeah, you don't yeah. get like you don't get like culturally beat down as much maybe anymore. And like I think that was really helpful to just have an elder network of people being like trying to help you, but also the, the they'll kind of clown you if you didn't come correct. Um, and I, I don't, I don't resent that because, you know. And he he mentioned gatekeepers and the Sean did on your on your podcast, and I'm I'm still a fan of like the right. You know that word is obviously loaded, but um, my 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 hope for like music culture is like less gatekeeping but better. Like if you're gonna gatekeep, like at least provide value and like, you know, be it yeah, be an elder, be a, at least keep the right gate, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, be a grouch about the right things and and help people level up and Detroit was always like uh, the culture of growing up around Detroit and the parties. And there, there is, and was a um, purity to it, which can be taken too far. And it's often taken far by the people who are not, you know, Mad Mike was more supportive of ghostly than a lot of the other um, startup labels at the time. Cause he is like, yeah, you're trying to do your thing. Like I remember he said to me, like the future of Detroit techno is, beyond city limits it's like he understood that detroit Tito was like a the a uh, a theology or like a spiritual an attitude right and i think that's that's the i try to keep that with me i never claim that we're a detroit label because that's sort of a heresy you know and to me and it disrespects or disrespects the the pioneers but i keep that attitude um in my like pocket that's like the little talisman where my my tastes lie a lot of people like you know kevin McHugh with his dc hardcore punk everybody has their like school of thought right and some of some of this stuff gets outdated and i also realize that it doesn't apply to modern you know i don't i don't dog anybody for liking um whatever dj is out now because it doesn't they didn't grow up with the same conditions they didn't have to um wade through the same muck that a lot of people had to to get to the music but it keeps it keeps you it keeps your head on a swivel. It keeps you thinking, right? But to ask to get back to Ann Arbor, yeah, it was like a college town, you know, outside of um, Detroit. Let me hang on a sec before we before you go about that. I've got a, a, a peripheral question to the gatekeepers thing because now that we're here, it makes sense to ask it now. Um, like barriers to entry, more generally, um, I think can be. Um, well, I think they can be useful, but they can also obviously be, well, they're barriers by by their very nature, right? So thinking about, um, I mean, record shops, the necessity to build a record collection to get into DJing, you know, what you were saying before about how um, the light is shone on artists, well, can be shone on artists so much earlier now with, you know, because everything's online. Do you think that, um, you know, having uh, hoops that you have to jump through in order to get somewhere. Well, I mean, how, how useful is it? I mean, is it, I mean, can you break it down into a sort of positive or negative correlation? I mean, it probably isn't useful. I think, I think about it on a pleasure level that where like, I think of taste and that's a lot of what her Sundays is about is taste is like a muscle to me 
that yes, some people just have exquisite taste from from the cradle, and I, I those people are are like you know mostly artists, and they just have the touch, and I obviously revere that. Most of the rest of us have to kind of develop it, right? And there's like different phases of taste, just like grief or whatever. Um, there's like obviously like omnivorousness, like just trying to hear everything. There's like new, trying to develop nuance. Like I remember buying records, like jazz records or whatever, and being like, I know I'm not really ready for this. Like I don't have the palate. It's probably how food is for people too. Um, but I know eventually like I'll grow into it or I'll find my way in. And obviously sampling and hip hop was, is and was such a big part of that education. But it's like, you're trying to develop your own taste, not necessarily to flex it or to, to lord it over people. And I'm glad that that era has kind of gone away um, of like sort of gatekeeping um, knowledge is, is, is a, is a bummer, but I think you want it for your own satisfaction so that when you hear something, it actually, you can register like, okay, what is the, what is this coming from? Or like, what is this referencing or, and that's just like a life pursuit that I want as a human um, is to develop taste. So yes, having, I don't think you can recreate those degrees of difficulty for, for new audiences and nor should you. Um, obviously you want to, you want to take down any barrier to entry as far as cost and access. And I think obviously the benefit of the modern era where you can distribute, you can make master, you know, self distribute and promote for free effectively, um, is a huge, the biggest win in music writ large. And I know there's still gatekeeping as far as like gear and, and access to, um, professionals and, and mentorship and that whatnot. And that's hopefully what we continue to like whittle down, but you want a free, you want a free creative market where talent rises and talent plus taste, you know, workouts and muscle <laughs> development is where good stuff happens. And so I don't, I don't know like what the, the hoops are. I think the hoops probably are more psychological now. Whereas if I had to, if I was looking at socials every day as my main diet, it would seem incredibly both deceptively easy just to just become a, you know, a great DJ or selector or whatever, but also incredibly daunting because some people are just so far ahead and would my local night, my bar night in whatever town feel like enough so I guess the hoops now probably are more like self-worth, mental health than like a perceived person that's in the way of you being successful. How do you develop a practice that makes you feel worthiness uh, as a label, musician, DJ, anything, p promoter, um, without getting down on yourself? That's, that's what I would be afraid of starting now. You can't replicate the conditions of the time, so it's kind of moot to try to. And I think the same way about like factory records and all the stuff that I grew up adoring eight, four AD, you know, warp early warp. Like I, I love those stories and I read them, you know, like I'd hail them whenever they emerge, but they're not terribly useful. They're, they're, they're the spirit of them is useful to like the, the sort of maverick, um, the bravery to like put stuff into the world. But those are those eras don't exist like and it's even even for ghostlies which is you know 25 next year that's a different time zone so it's like you get the you learn from these these labels and i i, I, I love these histories because they give me ideas obviously factory is such a big part of 
ghostly culture, just like giving catalog numbers to everything and what whatnot. But it's uh, you you take all these ideas and you have to make your own little stew out of them using the the moment and the time that you live in. Is my attitude. Yeah, totally. I mean, just going back to what you're saying about social media, actually, because I mean, that sort of clicked in my mind that yes, there are like psychological pressures that go with that. But also, I think there's a real danger that it sort of sets the wrong targets for people, particularly the visual sides of that stuff. And I kind of worry that that has a negative effect. I mean, yeah, everything, everything's that way, right? I mean, that's where I don't think, you know, I guess besides like writing a book, there's very few industries that are not fully uh visualized or popularized you know and it's, it's yeah you can yes there's a there's a sadness in like because the 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 idea of the dj or the producer what i love about dance music is that sort of you can go from zero to a hundred with a great song doesn't matter who you are like obviously you get to get lucky and people to hear it but the anybody around the world that they make like a truly fantastic cut even under an alias with faceless can, that's the fastest way to like immortalize yourself. And like the, some of the greatest records of all time are like in dance are like one-offs aliases, random sessions that I love. I love that like uh super power, superhuman moment. And yes, it's you, you hate the idea that maybe that those don't happen, but there is, there are, there are burials out there. There are um, artists who don't have a DJ practice or a persona that are successful um but uh if you want to if you want to be sort of more of a full uh, immersive type of artist it, the, the stakes are higher or the stakes are higher and the stage is higher to get to yeah sure absolutely so let's just uh, yeah go back to what you were um going to be saying about ann arbor and the um yeah uh, scene there yeah i mean it's 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 like a scene it's like a beach where the, your sand castles get you build a little scene and then because it's a college town, it, it sort of erodes um, like the waves kind of take it away every year. But I think that's OK, because the Ann Arbor folks that I was working with at the time and still work with most of them, there was like, you know, Brendan Gillen from Interdimensional Transmissions was still living in Ann Arbor, was a big mentor figure for me. And now he's throwing some of the best parties in the world, him and his and his cohorts um, at No Way Back, uh, which is kind of like a a spiritual tradition of like Midwestern DJ style and has become a real like staple um, for people coming to movement, et cetera. So he's, you know, do, still, still preaching the gospel, which is great. Um, you, had, you had people like recluse who was kind of the radio DJ at the time he was just leaving. He was on planet E and he's still doing his thing for Roland and making tracks and stuff. Um, but, but those, but those scenes had also kind of, Wayne's too, you know, they were on to doing different things and there was a lot of indie rock at the time. And so Ghostly's always had a, uh, a sort of shoegaze rock indie, um, DNA to it as well. Um, but it, I think, I just think of it as like a, fer- it was a fertile, um, like any college town. It's a place where you can kind of practice ideas and meet people and form a little guild of professionals. Okay. Yeah. Another thing that came out of Sean's episode was, which kind of relates to what you've been saying is the, um, lots of bangers, not many anthems. Now you mentioned before that the albums was always a big thing with 
Ghostly's output. So I actually wanted to ask you about your A&R process. So, I mean, I've always found it difficult to sort of A&R in the direction of what I might perceive to be hit, a hit record, and actually, what motivates me much more as someone, as someone who's signing a, an act, is you know seeing potential in someone rather than seeing finished records. So, how much does that resonate with you? And what do you think about the, the idea of that there's not any anthems anymore? Um, I mean, I think it's I think the anthem question probably is more of like that we don't live in a, a monoculture as much, um, meaning that there's different anthems for different places and it's very hard to get a foothold on the public imagination with a song. Whereas the dance music industry of yore maybe was like built around big tunes, like a, a Pete Heller, big love or whatever summer there was a cycle of like winter music conference, Ibiza that there was this like network. Um, and I've been involved with a couple songs that have, that have transcended and you've remixed one of them, I believe with mouth to mouth by Audion which, you know, at the time you could, we could sell the thing. It was the biggest 12 we ever had. It was probably 10,000 copies of the vinyl that we sold um, through Neuton in Germany, but just some songs just have that resonance and hit, hit the cultural zeitgeist. There's, there's still room for it. Um, and I think, I know there's some pushback against it, but I like that there's like an increased, increased melodic uh, cult. There's a lot more color coming out, even from some of the more serious po-faced corners of dance music right now like i i think that's great like let's have let's it is dance music it is supposed to be fun um i think that's the that's what we're that's the <laughs> and 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 i and i i love I'm, I'm like a i love you know um hard techno and i'm a jeff mills super fan and all that stuff too there's a place for that but also like it is tunes it is like melody and hooks so i i've never been yeah i've never been great at like um hit spotting for sure, I'm trying to develop like longer relationships with, with artists, and then hits usually are lucky. Out of that, um, I don't know how you've experienced it with your your labels, but oh yeah, complete flukes every time. <laughs> you know, just like happy coincidences, basically. Right. It it disabuses you of like being a genius as an A and R person, which I think is good because everyone's like, oh, I know how to spot tunes, and it's like okay, and then you like the one you think is a big one isn't, and then the one you didn't the B side is, and then it's like, all right, the, the universe will tell you if it's a hit, you can't really push it, you know? Yeah, totally. So how did you meet Matt there in the first place? I met him, um, my first week of school, Matt's like a year older. So he was second year at same college, uh, Michigan. And, um, I was just kind of like ambling around going to house parties the first week, like welcome week. And he was, he was in the basement with a good rolling groove synth, and like a ASRX loop together, chained together and making like kind of loopy dance tracks. And I being a, a herb, I was just like, this is great. And got his, uh, his number. I was like, let's hang out. You know, I was just trying to meet friends and stuff um, that were into dance music. And we had lunch the next week and we we're sharing, you know, he wanted to, to get out there as an artist. I, I already had sort of designs for the label and a name and a logo scratched my notebooks and just, you know, worked for, for a year together with him and my friend Dave Shaman, who played as Disco D, um, who had already had a record out, was already playing clubs. He was kind of like the Sherpa. And um, a year later, we, we put out a record, which, funny enough, ends up becoming our biggest ever uh, adjacent hit with Hands Up for Detroit. 
which became a a, a number one UK number one through Fatty Legrand, which you know, speaking of like weird dance music coincidences, but um, yeah, it was very like humble, just selling copies of that record from my my Ford Explorer to the local stores, trying to get some consignment going and then shipping copies to DJs. So it's just the idea of a label wasn't a business at the time. It was just like a, pers- a creative and small business pursuit at most. Yeah. So um, that is a, so the Federal is a sample from, from Matt's record, right? Yeah. The vocal is Matt's. Is it actually him? Yeah. I mean, some people will maybe have not acquiesced to that attitude, but it is indeed his voice. <laughs> um, and uh, we figure, you know, everybody's copacetic um, and it's cool. It's like fun that, Speaking of that sort of like kismet, um, that 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 helped pay our bills for a couple of years and help Matt, you know, buy some gear. And sometimes the, these fluke things happen that seem bad, but uh, end up being good. Yeah, totally. So, okay, let me look at what I've got in my notes. I wanted to ask you about your opinion of brands in music i mean we talked about brands particularly in journalism with with sean but i wanted to ask you about how you think about sort of music supporting itself through a corporate associations or just brand associations corporate's a bit of a loaded word but how do you think about that generally speaking i mean it's pretty hard to separate the two i was looking at old flyers the other day that i had saved of ours and and a lot of them have a, a a beverage or alcohol or magazine attached to them um, and, and I think some of the best, um, journalism has been funded by, um, you know, Red Bull obviously. And you could argue that, that RA is, is a, is a, you know, ticket, it, it ticket enabled journalistic site, which I don't think is a bad thing as long as they're not, um, writing about people just because of, uh, yeah, if, if editorial is independent, I suppose that's the important bit, right? Right, which I've never, I've, in my opinion, they they um, they have done a good job of covering um, artists that haven't been given the treatment historically. A lot, of, a lot of great Detroit pieces have come have come from RA that no one else would have written. So, I I, I don't think it, you know that that dance between culture and capital has been a thing forever. Obviously, you have like patron era. And that's like the church as as capital, um, and, and historically. So I think it's sort of a, a, a fallacy to think that there's ever really been a complete separation. And you need, you know, beverages, fuel clubs. But. So if I could just interrupt you there, I, I suppose the difference is in the kind of attitude towards it. So yeah, I mean, it's absolutely always been there. That's that's totally true. But I suppose the sort of I, the the difference that I detect or the the sort of shift over the last few years has sort of been the, I guess, the open embracing of it by by acts as much as anyone else. You know, the people who used to be most vehemently against it or the cohort that used to be most vehemently against it seem to have shifted their stance. I mean, it's not the same people, but I mean, there just seems to be a shift in, in the attitudes towards it, you know. I mean, the Red Bull example is an interesting one because, I mean, that is... Um, I guess it can be seen. I heard they're starting up again, but it certainly can be seen that that initial period of Red Bull Music Academy really is is really positive. It's it's impossible to conclude anything otherwise, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that's sometimes you know, sometimes you get lucky in a corporation. I mean, I think it's easy to forget Scion uh, cars, where Toyota were a a really 
powerful benefactor of a lot of parties in the 2000s. And I'm sure the UK has a lot of similar examples. Um, I, I, I guess I, I don't like love it. Like it's not something that I um, aspire to, but I mean, a lot of, a lot of, um, I've always been pro sync music sync, like get it, trying to get our music into places that are hard to get to. Um, just cause that's what helps artists stay afloat. And that's historically been a huge part of, um, our ability to, to keep artists royalty statements flush. Um, I think that obviously, yeah, you, I think that's just a cultural change in, in every form of media and music is that brands are cool. Money's cool. Um, which bones me out because in a, just like an old school sense, because the, the, that is, and I understand it because right now you don't, as a young artist, you don't have 10 years to wait and build and develop your practice. You have to get on the road. So you're going to take the capital that you can get your hands on, which I don't lament. I don't uh, have any shame or judgment on that. Um, but I see it with, with rock too. You know, the idea of selling out is, is an old concept. Now, um, you want, people want to see their favorite artists get successful. Um, and I don't, I don't have any bad feelings about that. It may, it may not be what I want to absorb, but I also know a lot of culture is not for me. So I just try not to let it, um, I, we're still going to do what we're going to do and do the best that we can do it. But like, again, it's like a, it's a, not a, um, it's not a, uh, monoculture anymore. Everybody has their own, their little, their own church, their own discord, their own conversations, their own podcasts. And I think that's cool. It's like you, you, everyone is in their own little lane and um, doing the best they can. And if brands can help you do that, great. And if you don't want to work with brands, then don't, you know, it's like, it's, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess like, um, I mean, you know, the idea of selling out being an old concert, I mean, I mean, you're absolutely right to say that. I just, I struggle to put my finger on why that is. I mean, like, I think that inequality being as high as it is, is probably a factor in that. I think also maybe um, hip hop being so influential as a culture maybe has had an impact on it too. I don't know. What do you think? Um, I mean, can you put your finger on any possible reasons? I would assume that social, that like the, the, um, statification of everything is probably tied to this, that art as a creative practice with kind of subjective feelings about success. And obviously there's like, there's still clear winners in any circle, but if everything is driven, if everything we do is driven towards, uh, numbers, stats, likes, hearts, then we're going to, you're going to find whoever can amplify that the most is going to get the the most attention. Um, so yeah, I lament that as a metric of worth. Um, and I think a lot of smart artists have maybe receded or have built their own communities with Bandcamp um, or Patreon or Discord or, or all these things stitched together and kind of like, you know, you know what, like, Yes, I, I stream. I have all these things out there as bait to get people to find my music. But if I can find some fans and really bring them in close, I can super serve them in a way that feels good. And but yet, to be artists have to be almost like more business people, which has its own um, problems attached. And yes, it benefits the artists that are most 
gregarious or ingenuity and have the most ingenuity around marketing. Um, and that's not a good thing, but I'd also argue that that's not a new thing either. Yeah. And maybe the decline of labels has put more of that responsibility onto artists, you know, cause that's something which I think, um, you know, historically where, you know, labels were much more powerful, that was their primary function, right? It's, it's marketing. And with their, you know, influence dwindles, then, you know, that's that effort's got to come from somewhere, I suppose. So maybe that explains some of it too. For sure. Yeah. I think art, the idea that art, that labels can sort of make artists and that people always ask like, you know, what do you look for? I mean, my attitude is similar to probably what you said, you're looking for character and like personality of, or the, the integrity of their artistic vision. I, we can't, I can't just, just cause Ghostly put something out doesn't mean it's going to be successful. Right. So I'm looking to, uh, our team's looking to find artists that are going to be successful one way or another. And hopefully we can help that happen. Um, but we can't just cause we put something out, maybe, you know, a tiny percent of our, our audience cares, um, about everything we do, but most people make their own decisions about, the artists themselves, you know? Yeah. I mean, has that changed in your perception since you started? Um, I, th I think, yeah, I think, and I, I'm guessing this is true for, for your labels. Um, yeah, there was, because there was less, you know, go to the record store and there was, there was a hundred new records that week at Fonica or record time or wherever you lived at, and you picked 30 of them for your stack that you checked out because of the label they were on. It doesn't matter who they were, right? Like they could be faceless, nameless, nobody you've heard of, but you're like, oh, it's on Hot Flush or it's on Warp or uh, Gigolo at a period of time or um, any any label that you – Compact for sure. That it's kind of They almost specialized in being faceless, right? It was like Compact was the, the story. Um, that probably has changed. Yeah, that's the primary brand, I guess, as opposed. Yeah, to the I mean, it's brand. and that's that was a f effective tool and it built a whole culture around it. So yeah, I think it has changed, but also the idea that you're actually like <laughs> at a record store has changed, and the labels are now just like a copyright line on the on Spotify. Yeah how how Im how important are those two things? Like how related are they? Because it seems like pretty. I mean, important. it's a bummer. I would love like, better label search. And I think everyone feels this way about and, and DSPs and it, Apple's doing um, some really cool stuff with the curator pages and the DJ mixes that are coming online and trying to get back to that stuff. But you know, that's only going to appeal to certain people, but I think that's great. Um, yeah. And the artwork. Yeah. I mean, it's just, just a different mode of thinking and it's still, I, I, I listen and watch the hard wax email every week. I love the, the videos they include because you can kind of, it's basically like a VR of your hands flipping through a stack of new records. So it's like a weird sensual experience of like what I used to do at record stores with someone else's hands. But it, I, I still find music through those like needle drops. Um, but that's again, a very like niche part of the world. But um, yeah, I don't think labels, I think labels as party brands have been the ones that have been the most successful um, in the modern era where you can, it's like a lifestyle brand. And I think that's a healthy use of a label is like, we're going to throw parties, we're going to put out records, but it all kind of ladders up to like the shows, you know? How much of that stuff have you guys done over the years? Um, we do like, we do a lot of anniversary stuff. Um, we did a lot, like maybe 10 plus shows for our 20th. Um, I think early days we did a lot more. 
just because that was a big key to building the brand, Winter Music. And um, we still do like, a, we did a panorama uh, show for our 10th and 20th. But I see those more as just like celebratory. It's not our core business. I wouldn't say that we're great promoters. But when we do an event, we like to make it as as meaningful as possible. But it's not, we don't, we don't, um, we're not a booking agency. So we don't um, make, you know, those are usually like break even at best. Yeah, I mean, that's another uh, useful um, aspect to successful labels business models, isn't it? I mean, I think um, I can think of a few labels that have done that in an effective kind of a way. Um, But it's very much, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a very much a non-music or non-directly music related thing, right? Well, I suppose obviously it's related, but yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about streaming because I know that's something that you, well, that's something you pulled out of Sean's uh, episode on Twitter. In fact, you said, I don't agree with what was said here. So, so tell me, tell me, tell me why you don't agree with it. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, I guess the, um, and I, I don't shill for any, like, com- I think about this as sort of a generalist idea, not like it's this company or that company. And obviously I, you know, we promote to all these companies. So I'd be, um, a liar if I said I didn't care, um, that, how they how our stuff performs because that's that's my job right is as a company we're our job is to make the music as um accessible and um available as possible because we want more people to hear it we want more serendipity to happen more what have you um i just think it actually is i think it's, it's naive to think that it's like this genie in a bottle thing where it just would have if if xyz company didn't exist it would just go back to being like files and downloads like cuz i mean netflix obviously had, had had shown that um entertainment as like resource like it's almost like cable or water or heat <laughs> like you're buying you're buying and i'm and i'm sure they'll get continue to roll up into like multi you know you know movies tv music etc like that was going to happen um rates are a, a different conversation and obviously there's more headroom um, I'm glad that there's some increases in pricing going on with, with streaming companies, uh, and hope that that impacts, um, the royalty rates. But I also lived through piracy, um, and, and benefited from it. Ghostly, a lot of our marketing early on was people sharing our music, um, and a lot of, a lot of indie bands. Yeah. That, that was always the argument in favor, wasn't it? Like it's, um, it's exposure, that old chestnut Right, but it was actually. But you see that as being positive, though, to an extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I actually think it was real. I mean, like for yeah, I, I, that's how. I mean, people have bootlegged tracks for years. Um, Hip hop is part of that culture too. It's like that's part of the. It's like it's like a gray market or like uh, um, there's always in a, in you know people stealing tracks or bootlegging them on dub plates. That's just part of the distribution of music. And a lot of, um, a lot of time I see like being like, oh, this, you know, that streaming is just inherently bad from people that I remember like sharing tunes with me, like liberally of other people's free for free, like full flax and stuff. Very like, which is fine, but it's also like, well, you weren't actually paying for music. So I, I just, I, I have a hard time with, um, with, uh, uh, zealot thinking on most of this stuff because it is it's just more new nuanced and um 
which is not popular opinion. I know no one likes a a centrist, but I mean, but you know, that's a very it's like the, the worst place you can be right now in culture. But it does streaming does work for some people, and it doesn't work for others. And it's your it, to Sean's, which I agree with Sean. Pick a you know decide what you want it to be, and hopefully you have the agency to decide that, um, or lean more heavily into Bandcamp, or, or lean more heavily into Beatport, or or pull your stuff if you if it's not important. But um, I um, I think it's benefited a lot of artists immensely, and not just major label artists. Um, but again, it, it 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 does it does some some music doesn't do as well. You know our dance music catalog doesn't stream as well as our, our non-dance music, you know? Um, and that's a bummer, but also dance music on streaming has the, the records that we've put out historically have DJ centric sequencing, right? All of our, I'm guessing a lot of heart flesh stuff starts with, you know, 16 bars of drums. A minute and a half of kick drum. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, that's just a fun, that's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a bad. Yeah. Forget 16 bars, like 48 bars. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. And it's, so it's like, these are, things are not built for certain and maybe we'll get, maybe we'll re-edit them or something or, or they just are part of the, the time, but it's a technological outcome. That's, it's unsavory, but I also would argue that the people who, um, listen to who are buying most of that music are DJs or DJ centric. And there's places to do that that have really strong networks and editorial like Beatport. So I feel like the, and, and, and Bandcamp, which I think actually disagreeing with Sean again, has really good editorial and does steer you towards a lot of different genres. And if you, if you, well, if you want to read it, they have a great radio show. They have a great, um, you know, uh, editorial team. So I think there's some, there's, there's like a lane for everybody. You just have to kind of decide what it matters. And I also, and I, and it always is, the game has always been kind of um, challenging to be a musician. So I just, my attitude is um, make, figure out how to make the most of the moment. What, and lean into, lean into your strengths. And it's a back to the psychological warfare of, of socials. It's like, yeah, it sucks. You see people getting all the shine and like playing, you know, these big shows and castles and with, with drones. And it's just like, yeah, it's, it's, I don't, I don't, that doesn't appeal to me. Um, but if for certain fans it does, and you, you've, it looks like what you're doing with the podcast and the label and the anniversary, like you're building a community of probably old fans and young fans that are discovering the label for the first time, which I admire. Um, and using, using the tools of the day with discord and, and, um, Patreon and, it's it's an evolution. Yeah, I right? mean, sure. I mean, like to me, you always have to kind of embrace the plurality of it, I suppose. So, I mean, it's crazy. I, I think the idea of taking your music down off streaming services is, yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, it does serves really basically no purpose whatsoever. I mean, if it if it, that's what you, if that's you know if you're a sleep archive and it's just not important to you, I'm I'm just using his name as as an artist that I could see being fine. I mean, um, I think. Um, Ski Mask did it, and I, I'd love to f- read about it and fo- hear about it. And again, he commands an audience that will follow him across the platforms, um, and that's cool. And that's like you, that's a decision that you can make. Some people, you know, and I think that, that I love that there's that flexibility now for artists to, to find their space. So, 
it's hard. I mean, it's just, it's always been hard and it's increasingly challenging, but there's a lot better networks for independent artists now that I think I want to promote them. I try to buy from them, um, whether it's record stores, Boomcat or Bleep, et cetera, or Beatport or Bandcamp. Cause yeah, you do want to like vote with your dollar as a fan too. Um, and streaming is a big part of my music discovery and journey. And I end up, you know, buying vinyl because I heard stuff on, on Spotify, but there's no right answer. It's just, I think it's dangerous to have, um, similar to the brand conversation. It's dangerous to, to think everything's a binary. Yeah. I mean, I was, I actually read an interview with you from back in 2004, when I was preparing for this and you were asked the question about, about Namster, basically about MP3 trading or peer to peer trading. Um, and you were pretty positive about the outlook having, um, you know, Bleep had recently launched and iTunes was kind of getting started. So have you, have you generally speaking, taken a sort of positive view over the years about this stuff? Yeah, I just, I think there's, there's ways to, it's always a, back to the Detroit thing, there's always a way to subvert things and make them interesting. And that's like the way the great artists use the time, you know, and use the, the tools. Um, I remember we sold, we had overage because whenever you press a CD or record, you get more copies of the jacket, as you know, or the digipack or jewel case that you need. So I remember we were selling the, the you know, we only sold probably like 10 of them, but we were selling the digipack for some of the albums um, so that you could burn your own CD and put and, and have it in your collection if you were that if that's what ended up happening. And so I'm actually not like a, a, a techno optimist in a true sense. Um, I'm, I'm like sort of a I'm sort of chaotic neutral where I don't um, I, I want to be conversant in what's happening. I don't have, we don't have to play in every sandbox, but I, I don't want to turn my nose up at everything because you risk, you risk missing out on, um, ideas and conversations that, you know, I follow a lot of web three stuff. I'm not terribly active, but I'm interested in DAOs. I'm interested in, um, blockchain as authentication, as community, as, um, tickets and like proof of attendance. I don't, doesn't mean I'm, I'm like super um, conversant, but it it keeps me from getting brittle, um, and it helps me be like, oh, actually, the best ideas come from outside of music. If you're looking to other musicians for your ideas, you're probably too late or or it's boring. So it's like look at look at restaurants, look at um, art galleries, look at whatever you know, look at online communities, maybe gaming. Um, and, and, and take, take those ideas into your practice because, um, that's where more innovation is happening. Music's actually relatively traditional, which I know you have said before too. It's, it's not terrible. It's especially for what it's supposed to be. Techno is this idea of futurism. It is pretty parochial. And so I've always had a little bit of a, uh, I want to put a finger in the eye of the sort of traditional attitudes of, dance music often and I've tried to through with ghostly over the years because and make fun of it even with like socials and kind of poke poke at it because it is a, it is often kind of like a um, ivory tower um that needs to kind of self-correct um but that's just my bias yeah yeah no absolutely so i mean the obvious next question is what do you think about the 
coming AI revolution and its implications for music? It's, you know, I mean, yeah, like we've, I've, a friend of mine was playing with it and we, did, we didn't even tell Matt because it was, it was depressing. We, we were like, make a Matthew Deere Audion song, this BPM. And it kicked out a pretty cool little like Perlon loop of like 2006 era, Matthew Deere, 2004 era. And so it's like, okay, fine. Which, 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 uh, sorry, which program was that? Um, I have to look. It may have been the Google one, the new Google one. We were, it's just like, he was just having, we were just having fun. Be like, what, it, what does it actually do? And I think you have to look at this stuff as fun. It's like the app. The, yes, there, there's obviously like graver concerns that this thing is like the end of like a lot of jobs. And that's, I'm not talking, that's shit. Humanity itself. Yeah, that's what terrifies <laughs> me, but it's like not the, I don't have the, the, it's not my, um, I don't spend enough time in it to really have a strong opinion. I'm sure it is going to be a fucking nightmare because anytime misinformation is sort of codified and, and made normalized. And I've asked it, you know, I asked it to write my obituary, which I saw an artist do. I thought that'd be interesting. I think it was chat DPD. And it had all these like fake facts about me. <laughs> and like, I was like, okay. Really? And I was <laughs> like, oh yeah, I did co-found movement <laughs> festival. Like, yeah, that sounds like this, like almost this like dream state of like, where I could see if you repeated that shit enough at me or it said like, you know, Paul, um, you know, found, was the, in, the first person to ever release a dubstep or grime record. And you would start to believe it, which that's what, how the internet works. And, um, so yeah, that's all that shit is an absolute nightmare to me and I hate it. Um, on the music front, which I can speak to, yes, maybe, maybe a lot of musicians are going to go, Hey, cook me one twenty six like, um, you know, steppy drums, open hi-hats, circa, um, James Ruskin, whatever. And then it's just, yes, that's, that's made easier. The argument is maybe we're past, like, maybe that's okay. Like <laughs> maybe we've done, maybe we've done that. Right. And to your point, it's like artists are going to make, choose these, make these tools interesting. And the visual side, I've been watching that closely. And my friends who are dabbling, who are like certified greatest designers in the world some of them that in my opinion are using it to make really interesting shit um because they're they're not just say, saying they're not just plugging in something and just pressing send they're taking it they're probably tweaking it they're using it as ideas generation like so i think great artists are going to use these tools especially ai as like assistants or interns um in a, in a positive sense and um come up with cooler innovations and also democratizes design and music for a lot of people who don't have access to photoshop and other things so my pop on a good day i feel that way on a bad day i think about how the perception of creativity becomes um assumed to be rote if i'm looking at a textbook of art history um and i and i and i i can do a a Duchamp painting um, with a, with a click. Do I, does it mean anything to me? But that already may just be happening anyway. Um, but again, the art artists, I, I have faith in artists. That's where I put my like energy that they're, that our great artists will use anything that's invented to make better work or more expressive work. And I, and most civilians aren't going to make good stuff. That's just everything. And electronic music proved that, right? Like, People thought electronic music was going to destroy live music. It didn't. And people still make amateur jam stuff and it's fine, but good stuff rises, right? 
Yeah, totally. I mean, I think with AI, it's it's going to call into question the definition of art, which is something which has been <laughs> argued over actually in, in our Discord server <laughs> quite a lot in the last couple of weeks. But I mean, it really does... Um, but the question, I mean, like, and certainly stuff like uh, conceptual art in, in, in fine art and um, I guess the post-World War II developments in, in popular culture, which have kind of taken over the arts more generally, have have stretched a definition already, right? So I think the, the addition of AI into this stuff is going to, you know, it's, it's, um, it poses further questions at least, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. And those are, those are some of the more interesting questions, I think. Um, yeah, art has become very subjective. Criticism is very uncool, um, for a lot of people right now, which, which is, uh, it, it seems like a democratic thought, but it actually is kind of dangerous because when you remove the critical element of anything, even if you don't disagree with it, it does start to assemble a hive mind where you have to like stuff and everything a person does is great. And I just think that's, that stuff is real um, bummer zone for me. Cause I think you, you need, sorry to interrupt you, but I think you, I was just going to say, you can quite easily make the argument that the democratization of art is not a good thing at all. <laughs> you know, it's just a general level. I think they all serve a purpose. Right. And I think, um, it's like how like major labels or uh, galleries or museums, like, of course they make bad calls. I mean, uh, you know, Oscars pick often pick the wrong best picture, right? Um, they serve a purpose, their conversation pools, um, galleries. Yeah. The, are like the classic gatekeepers, um, museums are, have, have been discussed as more as in the conversation of thieves of thievery. And there's like a lot of conversations around like, you know, um, what is the future of canon? I think about this a lot, you know, because I I can listen to Voodoo Ray, divorced of context, and it doesn't, it just sounds like a cool tune, right? It doesn't, it's, it's beautiful and brilliant, elegant. But if I'm a, if I'm a kid, it it just sounds like a a tune. But so that's where history, you want to have history, you want to have good journalism, you want to have, if people, so people want to go down those rabbit holes, it's like, oh, this is why the song was important. This was a response to Detroit and Chicago, like all that nuance, but not, not everyone cares about that much depth. So I suppose um, there will be a historical out- outcomes, but as long as you have, there's, there's going to be a, a percentage of people who, who want to know this stuff. And hopefully there's journalists who could be paid to um, share that information for people who want to read it. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, with the AI, AI, uh, AI question um, in particular, I was reading about a company which floated uh, last week called Oddity, who is a, which is a beauty company, which is basically developing projects, products using like millions of photos of people's faces and facial blemishes and all that kind of stuff to, like, as I said, develop products and you know have acquired just a frenzy of, of interest as a result of this. And it kind of got me thinking... Um, if AI can be used in a in a positive sense with a, in a, in a music company like that, and I was just kind of scratching my you know racking my brains as to what that, what that might look like. I mean, can you think of a use case which is good for? Uh, and I don't mean to sound negative there at all, but like you know, I'm I'm genuinely interested in. This. I think there'll probably I think in some ways because AI in the current state is like prompt based and often revolves around you at telling or asking it to source somebody it's like make me um 
you know, in the style of Frank Lloyd Wright, whatever, there is actually a weird history built into it. Will it get mushed down into compost? Probably when everything's just, everything's just in the machine. I don't know. I, I think I same to my previous point. I just, I think it's um, too soon to, to call anything. It's like um, every industry at scale is 80% uninteresting, bad, or immoral is my attitude. 20% is going to be good. Um, and this just goes for like startups. This goes for art. This goes for music, most labels. And then you're like, that's what the lane I want to live in is like the 20%, maybe the 10% where of like conversing with people who are, who are using tools interestingly and making good choices and sharing their knowledge. And I, I try to, with the, with Herb, I'm trying to find people like that because it renews my tank. It fills my tank with optimism to, to watch people do cool stuff. And I want to do cool stuff too. So hopefully I'm useful to the, to more people because otherwise it's just, I'm just absorbing death rays. And I don't think that's a really good, I don't, I just don't, there's not, that's not a practice, not an artistic practice. That's just like, yeah, of course there's, there's a bazillion reasons to be dismal. And I think you should isolate ones that really matter to you and find a solution or antidote or put something into the world to, to commute, to commune around that concern. And so art, arts is where I get excited. And that's my lane that I feel empowered and emboldened by and try to continue to find good case studies to keep me from um, falling down the the well. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Do you foresee any significant change in the way people listen to music? I mean, with Chloe, I talked about spatial audio and and those sorts of developments. Do you you foresee anything like that becoming like more significant in in people's habits? Um, I went to the, yeah, I mean, spatial is interesting. I think you it's again, it's too early to, I mean, spatial has been around. I, I did an interview with Suzanne Chiani for Herb last week and she was like, oh, we were doing spatial like in the sixties, babe. Like she was just like, don't, don't, don't confuse yourself. Like this is, we've been trying to do this. And for someone like her, like a live show, I think, or I, I would come to see Braille uh, or Praveen and do a spatial performance in a cool room that's built for it. Right. It's like, cause I know he's making, makes beautiful sound design and if you know if it was a hot flush night and he was playing and it was a, a plastic people circa 2025 20, that has gorgeous spatial conditions i would pay that that gets me out of my chair right so i think you have to look at the live performance aspect i went to i was curious i went to the um sakamoto hologram performance at, at uh, hudson yards which is interesting sort of jg ballard like hyper commercial meets arts area that just was kind of created in New York. So it's its own, that's its own like essay <laughs> or thought piece, but I, I, I really wanted to see it. And it's a, it's a, um, it's a live video of him playing piano um, through you, that you view through a headset um, and you're, it's in the round. So it almost feels like a seance. And this was obviously sanctioned by Sakamoto. So I didn't feel like it was um, a historical or a unreligious um, and it was interesting if people, you can get up and walk around and, and stand next to his piano and over his shoulder, which was the coolest part when people started moving around. Um, and, and it was, it, it, it took on a, a spiritual quality. The performance itself, the quality of the video was, is not quite there. The room sound was there and I'm guessing it was really spatialized. It was an elegant array, just hearing music loud and 
quality reminds you how much how good music is. And so I do think there's going to be like almost a, and not necessarily like Japanese hi-fi bars, which are awesome. I love them too. And those are, it's a great tradition that's, that's starting to take root. But there's also going to be these like, I think, music rooms that will have visuals, but not necessarily just like big screens where people can hear uh, music beautifully portrayed, whether that's spatial or, or what have you, I'm not sure. But that, that I would, you know, to be in a room with people and hear music loud um, is still like a, a, a forever thing. So I'm optimistic that there will be use cases that actually feel like substantive and not marketing. Yeah, totally. How much um how much have you guys done on the label with with spatial mixes and that kind of stuff? I'm leaning into it per my usual ghostly attitude. <laughs> Just trying to I mean, there's we have these little principles on the site that I wrote and one of them's like, you know, there's the there's the good friction thing, which I think to your point about like what are the hoops you have to jump through? Like the best company, you know, waiting in line for a show is not the worst thing in the world if it's fun. Um having urgency around buying tickets is, is friction, but it's actually kind of fun. So like trying to lean into that stuff, but it's also one about just being like technologically interested in trying stuff and seeing what happens. It doesn't mean we're going to commit to for everything, but um, I do want to, cause I know there's going to be more use cases coming with goggles and other apparatuses and venues that spatial is going to enable. And I've been long on stems. I've been like begging artists to back up their stems because obviously hard drives die and shit, shit gets stolen. And this has happened to a number of artists I work with, but it's like the stem is like the atomic unit of electronic music. And what, what we can do with stems forever is remains to be seen. But this is the first like at scale use of stems that I've seen besides like remix contests. So I'm, I'm bullish on like um, that stems are, are valuable. However you, um, perceive them or sell them or market them but it's still very early yeah some things are really important point actually and it's something that i wish i'd uh been more proactive on over the years because none of us knew yeah right yeah super important so okay so how is your i mean just just last few questions really or last couple like i mean in terms of like running ghostly now um do you perceive it in a significantly different way do you think to, I mean, obviously it's, you know, obviously there is a difference of experience and a different of difference of, you know, market realities, but like as, in terms of like running the label, has there been, is there any significant change and how do you see it now, generally speaking? I think, I think the fundamentals, because Ghost is kind of straddled like a indie rock label slash dance label kind of in its approach, it, it's still pretty much the same fundamentals, which is like, how do you identify and um, encourage and, and help enable great artists. And usually they, you know, oftentimes find a, an audience and keep that going. Um, it's not terribly different. Obviously there's different tools. We, I've learned that not all of them are important um, for every artist. Like I, I would never encourage an artist to do something that doesn't make sense for them. Um, but you do want to encourage artists to do something, whatever, their lane is, whether it's writing or tweeting or blogging or TikTok or um, sharing their process. You know, everyone has a skill set, just like who, how do you get it out there? Um, 
let me let me just interrupt you there actually because you mentioned TikTok. We, we you mentioned TikTok and we haven't talked about that at all, and that's something which is um oh, it's just hugely significant now in a way which just continues to blow my mind. But I mean, how are you proactive at all with trying to get your artists to? do stuff on TikTok? I mean, do you see it as being something which is essential? Like, I guess the um, uh, dance music exists on the platform in a slightly awkward kind of a way, I suppose. So, I mean, how? tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously I encourage people to find a, a channel that they feel um, empowered by. It doesn't make them feel like a bummer because you can never really force anyone to do something. Like, they're going to fade out on it if it's not really their bag. Um I, I don't, I try not to think about the the platform as like the end of the conversation. It's like, do you have a voice? Cause like, cause platforms are going to ebb and flow in their popularity and we're seeing another wave of them coming. It's like, do you have a practice or a style of communicating that will cut through whatever platform you use? So, cause me just saying, Oh, you should use TikTok isn't really good advice. <laughs> right, it's not helpful. Is it? Yeah, I mean, like, it's easy because I could, it's like passing the buck. It's like, well, you should do that. It's like, well, of course, so we should all do everything. But what are you actually going to do? Um, I don't. I don't have a. I'm not the biggest fan as a user. I don't. But as a consumer of it, I find it makes me. Um, I'll, I'll rephrase it. As my use cases for socials doesn't doesn't align um, as much with what I need and what I what I want. I but I do love watching artists be really good at it and um it will continue to be a big thing and it's been hugely influential for some some artists that i know and are adjacent to um and and as it's almost like the the new radio i kind of look at it where you can have breakaway success without a lot of gatekeeping um which you know and if that's the kind of stuff you do then run it you know um but uh i think showing up at a party that you don't want to be at um, isn't helpful. But also my friend said, you don't go to the bowling alley um, and make fun of the shoes. It's like, like you can you just don't, just don't go. If it's like not your bag, it's fine. Um, but like, don't, don't make a, it doesn't mean that you have to like be, bemoan it as like the end of the world. It's just like, well, it's not my bag. Like where, where, where do you have a, where do you have energy to do stuff? And, but yeah, there's shit happening and it's, it's popping off for people. Um, I haven't figured it out necessarily at a, on a, on a label level. And usually we're pretty like adventurous with social platforms, but hopefully we'll get there. Okay. So a peripheral question to this actually is, um, regarding the, the writer's strike currently in Hollywood. Um, and I think it, is it the whole, is, is it the whole of us television and film? That that's covering? Yeah, it's it's writers and now um, directors, or sorry, actors are... Yeah, they've kind of come in in solidarity, haven't they? So, I mean, and the reason I um, link this to TikTok is that, you know, TikTok creators, quote-unquote, are you know very much not unionized, but are adding just incredible value to that platform, and in some cases making a ton of money themselves. So, I mean, how do you see that kind of... Um, you, I guess it's sort of um, that sort of union activity. It feels a bit 20th century, doesn't it? But I suppose you know, there's as much need for it now as possible, perhaps, and particularly with AI. For sure. Yeah, I think um, I don't know all the um, 
the nuances of like what of what's being asked or discussed. But I know AI is part of it, and I think it's smart to it is wise to not let um, cultural value be um, diminished. It will happen regardless, but it is it, it is important to remember that movies are not just the lead actor or a studio or a 24. It just, just happens. And I think that's the, that's the, it's funny. Like people like are like, Oh, like at Wes Anderson, I could do that. And it's like, well, yeah, you can do, you can do a symmetrical camera angle and you can do like a color scheme. And yes, like he, he's a, he's a, he has his own tropes, but like he's, he's pretty good at like making actors feel good. He, he writes like, it's easy to reduce things down. And it's like, what's good to remember that the movies are, and records take a fuck of a lot of work and not just for the one person, but like everybody involved, you know, as you know, a record is, is, is label artist, often mixing engineer, mastering engineer, the cut, the person who cuts it, the plant, you know, whoever's promoting it. It's like, these are, these are in movies is the ultimate and TV, the ultimate gilded system. And it's good for people to know, like it doesn't it just doesn't come out of a machine. These are like great. This is the confluence of great artists working together. So yeah, I think we're watching cultural value um, decrease, and maybe that's that streaming writ large's fault. But I also argue that's 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 a lot of. It's not just streaming. It's um, a cult a cultural sense of what's important, um, and it's good that there's pushback. Um, to recenter that conversation that it is creatives, not executives that make the work. Yeah, totally. Sorry, I interrupted you with my TikTok question. You are finishing, I believe. It just, I mean, I think, yeah, like it's like the tool was, was happening. This is just like the weapon, the most weaponized version of it. And, but you could also argue that TikTok, um, degatekeeped, if that's a word, the, the film industry, right. You could sort of bypass, um, a lot of actors who maybe weren't getting, jobs like found a lane and so that's why i'm, I'm sort of a relatively swiss on a lot of this stuff and like just trying to observe it like it doesn't again it doesn't appeal to my cultural interests i can separate that and put that down for a minute and be like it doesn't mean that i'm like avidly watching everything and being like this is great trying to find the value in it i don't like i think a lot of it just doesn't make any sense um but for me for my taste but it's like you do want places where people can catapult themselves to success without a ton of capital. And that's what, I think that's what I liked about dance music uh, in its early state is I did feel like you could be nobody and then somebody pretty fast. Um, and maybe that's not true anymore. And that's absolutely true of, of TikTok too, right? I mean, that's, that's it. TikTok in a nutshell. Right. And maybe it, it leans on certain, certain pieces, parts of people's personality, which is there's a good, you know, there's a dark side with all this stuff. Um, and music too. I mean, DJ culture, I've had a lot of um, indifference around, you know, watching my friends, their relationships, their drug use, hospitalizations, mental health. Like dance music was like the a main contributor to a lot of sadness in my life um, and music writ large. So it's like, you can't, you, you, but you just try to take, make the most of it. And, and I don't know how you've done it as long as you have. I'm sure you have similar stories, but it is a very treacherous psychological place to existing because it, it preys on ego. It preys on material obsession. It preys on um, self-image. It, it's like high school 
at scale. Yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah, that's a good analogy, actually. It very much is this. I mean, the analogy I sometimes use is war, but maybe that's a little bit um, over the top. I think maybe high school is Isabel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, war war has a, a little hits a little harder these days as far as the recognizability that we can look at in real time. It's a little harder to commune, but yeah, I mean, we all have these unresolved um, anxieties, and I don't think that they're ever going to go away. It's kind of what drives people, but uh, and we're all being preyed upon by um, by corporations and and forces outside of our control. So I think it's a, the like the bigger question is like, what do you believe in <laughs> as an individual? I think that that's kind of like where you, you want to have good networks of friends and communities and mentorships, however you find them um, so that you can like have a personal practice or belief because otherwise I don't know how you survive as a artist. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, Sam, this has been great. Let me just ambush you with the last one. And it's it's not a great question to be asked, I know. But tell me some uh, of your favorite ghostly tracks. <laughs> <laughs> I was prepared. My my gut was uh, clenching, waiting um, waiting for something personal. Um, I think the uh, I don't know. I I can send you them after this. That doesn't really help because this is a podcast. Um, I think the yeah. Come on, let's hear. Them. <laughs> no, the 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 ones that. I mean, a lot of it's personal. I'm sure for you, there's like there's deep cuts in your catalogs that maybe aren't the biggest ones, but they, you just remember the innovation um, or remember getting them, you know, uh, as a dat or a whatever. Um, speaking to like the original era, like uh, I'd say, I remember Matthew Deere's first album, which is 20 years this year, Leave Luck to Heaven. Um, there's a song called Fex on there. I think it's a, the opener. It's just a kind of a moody um, sort of quasi minimal techno track, but I just remember the the, the sense of like oh, I, watching my friend level up his game. Um, yeah, that's a great feeling. You know, yeah, where you just hear. I'm sure you have it with your own productions, um, but you can just hear someone go, "Oh, they unlock something." And Matt, Matt the way Matthew works is like that. Um, it's like every couple of years, it's just like there's another. And I think his latest release on Spectral. Uh, the return of losing it is another like unlock where it's just like, you got You just stepped up a level so that that record in, in general is sentimental to me. Um, the new, um, not dance music, but the new Julie Byrne album is sort of a good bookend. We just put out um, a few weeks ago and very personal, um, more uh, folky astral folk as the press would tell us um, the guardian, um, uh, but just singer songwriter music, you know? So it's like, I try not to, look too much about the genre but i mean yeah the, the ecstatic dance record mouth to mouth is still a favorite i still think it's like one of the best techno tra- tracks of its era or maybe ever for me i really love um who else um i don't know oh, it's so hard it, it's not um like i said it's not an easy question right <laughs> i don't know they're all they're all story right because there's, there's there's it's hard to separate them from the, the the people and the time and what they represented but there's no, there's no feeling like having a test pressing or a or just an unfin- unmastered MP3 and at a party and your friend lets it fly and she or he gets the response and you know that the song is going to connect. There's something primal about it. And so I always, that's always like the, the litmus. Cool, man. Well, listen, this has been great. Like I said, thanks so much for your time. It's been really fun. Ditto. Thanks for having me.
Yeah, that was Sam Valenti. What an interesting conversation with Sam. We hadn't actually met before, actually, I don't think. I'm 99% sure we never met before. But we conversed online occasionally. And, you know, anyone who runs a label for knocking on 25 years is just someone that I want to talk to, basically. So, yeah, some meaty stuff in there. Really, really enjoyed it. And um, maybe we'll get him on again next year to discuss 25 years of ghostly, perhaps. All right, we're done here. So if you haven't done so already, join us on Patreon, patreon.com slash official. There's lots of bonus stuff that you get as a member of there. So yeah, it's pretty cheap as well, as I mentioned at the front. So if you want to support us, then that's the way to do it. If not, then yeah, leave us a review or a rating, you know, the score on that five stars, please. That does also help the show. If you haven't done so, then please do that. In fact, you could do that anyway, if you're doing Patreon or not, frankly. But uh, yeah, that'd be nice. And um, hmm, what else? Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes to that Spotify playlist. If you want to check the music that we talk about on the show, that's a good way of doing it. That's probably the best way of doing it. The only way of doing it. And join us on the Discord. Hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. Join the conversation there. Join the community. It's a really nice bunch of people in there, actually. So, yeah, love to see you there. Right, I'm out. This has been a fun episode. But I'll check you back here same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Not a diving podcast. Let's go, wow.